Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we hit the road to the Central Valley to sit down with one of the GOP congressmen representing that region in one of California's key swing districts. That's right. We're thrilled to bring you our conversation with Representative John Duarte. He's a longtime player in the state's agricultural sector, and he won the 13th Congressional District in 2022 in a very close race against former State Assemblyman Adam Gray, Voters can expect a rematch between the two moderates next year. But we got to talk to him about immigration, abortion, and other hot button issues. So stick around for that. It was a great conversation. Yeah, good conversation with him. But first, guys, end of session in Sacramento, the time of year when the legislature has to finish up its business this year by midnight on September 14th. And the shenanigans have begun. I feel like there is a big kind of growing I mean, existing but growing maybe to a head tension between the business community um, and Democrats in the legislature, as well as a number of other groups. Um, There's a couple of big kind of labor fights, uh, a bill that would allow striking workers to get unemployment benefits. Of course, those are paid for by companies. It's not a thing the business community likes to hear about. Another proposal to increase the number of guaranteed sick days per year from three to seven. But I feel like all of this is being slightly overshadowed by a burgeoning uh, fight over next year's ballot measures. Um, So... I guess to back up a second, we have a ballot measure put on next November's ballot by the business community um, that's going to make it a lot harder for the state and locals to assess taxes and fees on voters. And what we saw last week was uh, the new Assembly Speaker flexing a little muscle, introducing a measure that would kind of undercut that business ballot measure. Right. Basically, the Democratic-backed measure that the legislature is hoping to get done in the next few weeks, potentially put it on the March ballot. So get it on before uh, this business measure goes on in November. That would say, look, if, if, you know, these business groups want to increase the threshold to pass taxes, basically their measure would make any tax have to be passed by the legislature and then go before voters. It would say if you're if you want to raise the threshold and raise some local threshold to two thirds, you your own measure on the state ballot would need to get two thirds of the statewide vote. So. Both sides have uh, accused each other of kind of changing the rules of the game on the fly. But this is, as you say, just an ongoing escalation between uh, business groups in California, a lot of the labor-backed Democrats uh, in the state capitol. I think of almost like rational deterrence, right? These groups are just arming up so much on either side that it almost seems like we could be headed towards some kind of compromise. We've seen this before where a ballot measure like the one business groups have qualified can be taken off. It doesn't have to go on the November ballot. 
involved. There can be a deal reached between now and then. And I think as you're seeing so much escalation on the on, on both sides, it could point to that. The question is, at what price? Right. Democrats, because we've seen this before where they've had to negotiate with the business community to get uh, a measure off the ballot. And a couple years ago, it meant that they had to basically put a halt on all local soda taxes. What's the price this time to stop this measure from getting on the ballot that really, and we can talk about some of the details, I think it's a fair comparison to something like Prop 13, maybe not with the immediate financial impact, but just the reach. Yeah. I mean, it is really extreme. And I think that that is one area that I'm going to be interested to watch this kind of positioning occur because you mentioned sort of labor versus business. I think that the tax measure the business uh, roundtable put on next fall's ballot goes way beyond that normal kind of breakdown because it does so clearly go after local jurisdictions and their ability to raise revenue. I think you're going to have a really interesting group if this stays on the ballot of bedfellows because it's going to affect red, you know, Central Valley cities and counties, special districts, just as much as blue ones. And at the end of the day, a lot of the services that are provided by government are not controversial or political. We're talking police and fire and, you know, in in some cases, you know, picking up the streets. I mean, I I really think that... um, If this is an attempt by the new speaker and Democrats and labor and, you know, the League of California Cities and all these other groups to kind of push this off the ballot, uh, they will be flexing that muscle in a kind of bigger coalition than we've seen. And and I think just generally it's going to be a fascinating um, campaign on both sides to kind of see how they try to take what just took me like an hour to just oh, go so, through this I mean, measure and understand it. You look, know? there's there's we have a lot. We're going to spend a lot of time, I anticipate, unpacking <laughs> yes, this business <laughs> tax measure. But one of the impacts we talked about today was just on local measures that have already passed. There's a retroactive element to this that would basically say measures passed in the 2022 election, if they didn't really specify a timetable for the taxation, they would be wiped out. And you'd have, there's plenty of local taxes here in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Right, we're talking billions of dollars in revenue. That would would be thrown out by this, Yeah, I looked at this, I mean, on the list that might actually, yeah, go down is $20 million a year tax in Oakland, $10 million a year tax in Culver City. That is real money for these jurisdictions. So, um, as you said, we'll be watching this really closely. I think the other question is just going to be the potential for litigation and just the kind of you know, Hornets. Oh, city attorney's nightmare. Up. City attorney's nightmare for sure. All right, so we're going to take a short break now. We will talk about this plenty in the months ahead. When we come back, our conversation Wednesday with Central Valley Congressman John Duarte. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate. 
www.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and we are excited to be in Turlock today in the office of Central Valley Republican Congressman John Duarte. He was elected in a very close race in 2022 to represent Congressional District 13. It runs down the I-5 corridor from around Modesto to the area west of Fresno. Congressman, welcome to The Breakdown. Good to be here, Marisa. Thanks for uh, taking some time. So as we said, we're in Turlock, um, and... I wondered if you would just start by telling listeners a little bit about your district, uh, what gets grown here versus other parts of the Central Valley further south. Excellent. Well, this district, as you said, goes from Lathrop up, up just west of Stockton all the way down the Highway 5 corridor, includes West Modesto, which is one of the richest, most heritage farm areas in America, um, all the way down to Colinga on the very south and west end, Riverdale. And so as you go up through the valley, we have more almond acreage in this district than any other district in America, probably any other political district in, in the world <laughs> for that matter, because when you're number one in California on almonds, you're number yeah, one we're in almonds. Yeah, we're in California, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, uh, so yes, sir. Tell us a little bit about uh, your family business. This is something that your parents started, is that right? Well, yeah, the uh, Duarte Nursery, Duarte Trees and Vines, is a business we have here in Houston, California, that was begun by my parents in 1988. I joined them in 89 kind of co-founded the business with them. Um, my brother, Jeff, and my mom and dad, Jim and Anita, all started it, built it up kind of out of the ashes of previous nursery companies my parents had had. And it was a real privilege to come out of college and be able to just be able to bootstrap a company together and kind of grow it um, with my parents, with my uh, brother, Jeff, and now my wife, Alexandra, and my son, Isaac, are full-time employees at the nursery. Isaac just came back out of Cal Poly with a horticulture degree. So we're very pleased. A very, very wow, family. Wow, three generations. Yeah. Your parents, tough bosses. <laughs> well, we were, you know, my brother and I owned half the company from the beginning. And so my dad was the president. He's retired since 06. I became president of the company in 2006. And um, now my brother, Jeff, is is running it. I've kind of dumped it on You have another job, life. yeah. <laughs> I've got some things to do. <laughs> I want to ask, though, I think you majored in finance. Um, was numbers kind of always your forte was that were you thinking about this burgeoning business venture when you did that yeah i've always known i wanted to run my own business be have my own business uh even as a young kid my dad was always entrepreneurial and that's the experience we had growing up and i had no doubt that i didn't want to work for somebody else per se uh so i went to san diego state chose finance just because the classes looked more interesting mm -hmm. i was in the undergraduate business program and looked at the management looked at the marketing looked at accounting, looked at, you know, real estate emphasis and chose finance because it just looked to be the most analytical, insightful, cool. and then came to work at the nursery for five years from 89 through 94, and then started the uh, MBA program at University of the Pacific. Oh, wow. So I'm actually a 97 graduate of the Eberhardt School of Business also with an MBA. So that's plenty of education <laughs> yeah. for a nursery guy yeah. and a farmer. And what seems unique about the nursery businesses, a lot of your clients are other growers. So you, it seems like you're constantly kind of in communication with growers in this area, farmers. You probably got to know a lot of people Absolutely. through that business. So when I came out of college and finance, I grew up in San Diego, Chula Vista area, came back to Modesto, having been born here, but not grown up. And my dad says, we're starting the Grapevine Nursery. Glad to see you. You're the sales department. And so I got to go out and take my finance degree and have which had absolutely no relevance whatsoever to selling grapevines. Yeah, sales is a different, <laughs> and, different. Uh, so I had to, I had to you know, go study grapevines and grape pests and genetics. 
and you know, I, I think I became a relative expert in that in a, in a few years. I was presenting at conferences and at our peak, um, you know, the nursery goes up and down. Peak years, we're serving about 3,000 agriculture clients. So we know agriculture very, very well. And agriculture knows the Duarte family and myself very, very well. I mean, propagation and the stuff you're talking about is actually pretty scientific, too. Yeah, we were the first of the tree nurseries. We started in grapevines and expanded into almonds and pistachios and walnuts and and really solved a couple major environmental issues um, through our technology. We invested in PhD research and we have a 11,000 square foot biotechnology laboratory oh. on site of the nursery. We really approached the nursery in a way that um, was integrated in a way nobody had approached a tree and vine nursery in the world before. We, we started micropropagation. We started doing transgenic work with Monsanto. We actually in the 1990s had an apple that wouldn't get worms. Oh. But the same BT gene in the apple tree that has been in the corn and eliminates insecticides. That became a question for the marketplace that didn't pan out. So we had to abandon it. But one thing we've done is we've cloned rootstocks, meaning that instead of planting seeds to make trees, we make sure the trees are genetically identical, both top and bottom. And so those advancements have led for better water utilization, more salt tolerance. We're able to grow almonds in areas in the Delta and down in the South Valley where the, the water quality, or they're inundated with too much water at times, mm -hmm. or the water is too salty or has too much boron. And we can help growers adapt uh, almond growing, pistachio growing, walnut growing to areas where it wasn't feasible prior to that. So right. we, we like to invest in research, but that's not why we're here today. Yeah. Very interesting, I know. We, we won't just ask you gardening <laughs> questions, I promise, even though that's kind of tempting. You, you know, through all these years, was politics at all of interest to your family? Was that a, a conversation around the dinner table? How did that? You know, the, the Duarte family, and I'll, I'll just go back to my dad because that's the example I grew up with, um, is never afraid of a fight. You know, I, I remember when we were down in San Diego, we had then Mayor of, Mayor of San Diego, Roger Hedgecock, great guy, out on Otay Mesa in the middle of nowhere talking about water and issues, issues at the time that my dad was dealing with. We came up here, we had planning and zoning issues and building permit issues, just trying to build a greenhouse operation, which was ridiculous that we had to struggle through. Um, we've always been moderate Republicans, but very partisan Republicans. We've always believed that the Republican Party really had the answers for business freedom, opportunity, affordability. And so we've always been um, in the Republican Party, but never, never on the fringe of it. Hmm. It seems like the nature of the business, you're constantly interacting with government, whether it's yeah. about water, you know. Well, I tell a lot of farmer friends I have who, you know, like all of us, and most, most of the time, all same people, I don't want to deal with politics. Well, if, if you don't deal with politics and policy, it comes to you anyways. You're going to be dealing with it. You're going to be dealing with results that you didn't have a part in developing. And, uh, and so I, I think more out of necessity than anything, we've been engaged in, um, in politics, fundraising for, for different, um, candidates over the years. We've been very engaged on policy. We got played a major role in getting the tractor tax taken off of tractors. We played the very lead role in getting the sales tax taken off of the trees and vines that we and other nurseries sell under the food exemption in 1997. So when I was, went to Farm Bureau for endorsement saying, hey, look, I've got, I've got more deliverables as a civilian than some of my opponents did after, you know, in some cases having a career in politics. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of notoriety for a long running battle you actually had with the federal government. This was, I don't want to get too far into the sure. weeds, but it was essentially over the way you plowed a piece of land that you owned in Northern California. 
you ended up settling the case. Um, I'm curious, like, did that make you more likely to run for this job? Did it draw you into politics more? What did you learn from that experience? It, it's hard to say retrospectively that set me up to do this. But remember, I was the guy that sued the government to begin with. So <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I, I was open for a challenge, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that that struggle caused Chicken me or the to egg kind of yeah. <laughs> or if I'm just that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I saw America just, you know, it, last year we were heading towards socialism. I personally, from my, my values, think that is bad. I think that working families will be crushed by socialism. I think we need to get water on the farms, drill American oil expand affordability and opportunity so that the American dream is alive for new immigrants, for families that are struggling to break out of, break out of their, their day jobs and, and accomplish something for themselves. And that was being shut down. So um, I don't know that struggles and losses of the past drove me other than I really believed I could win this seat and that this seat would be a very important seat to win to keep America from drifting further left than, it, than I, I thought it should and realigning it back towards a, a centrist, you know, somewhat conservative, free market opportunity society that, that I think is important to many people in this district particularly. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are in the office of Central Valley Republican Congressman John Duarte. So you said socialist several times. What does that mean to you? What are you, what are you talking about when you talk about the country going socialist? It, it, ultimately, it means that government becomes the primest state of the entire society. It's no longer that family, which I believe is the primest state. You know, we start teaching our kids what we want to teach them in school. We, want, we teach them that government is the only, only force that can protect them from bigotry and discrimination and that their identity is, is, is a problem one way or another and they need government to arbitrate, you know, how they relate to other people. So socialist means the government takes on this kind of social welfare role overall family issues and all cultural issues within our society. That's just wrong. And then more familiarly to a lot of people, it means the government starts to decide which companies are successful. It starts to decide which farmer gets prosecuted for planting wheat in a wheat field that other farmers farm just fine. Um, it start, you start to see government used as a cudgel against um, that farmer who stands up to the government and simply asks for a hearing to show them. I'm just mm -hmm. planting wheat, you guys are idiots. Um, so socialism to me means an overbearing government that starts to really push down an individual liberty and opportunity. And then as we see play out now, affordability is gone. Mm, I mean, but cultural officials aside, without the government intervention, what would this valley be? With what? Without the government intervention? I mean, in I mean, terms of water delivery, water, yeah. I mean, isn't that, isn't that kind of central to, to how the agricultural business operates? Well, let's realize that here we're sitting in Turlock this is the first municipal irrigation district in the country. The farmers in Turlock Irrigation District, and then a year later in Modesto Irrigation District, taxed themselves back in the 1880s, right? Taxed themselves to build the diversion at LaGrange and begin the water infrastructure that we have. These canals that we drive by were dug with horses, right? No diesel power. And that was the first irrigation districts in California. Then we built out of local money the first Don Pedro Reservoir that provided. So if you look around Modesto and you say, wow, I was just at Del Monte Cannery this morning. We're celebrating the Del Monte peach growers. You can go to Gallo Winery. You can, you can go through the whole Beard Industrial Tract and look at how Modesto 
has a disproportionate number of state secretaries of agriculture, national secretaries of agriculture. You look at Modesto, has got the biggest canneries, the biggest wineries in the world. My family's in the nursery business, you know, Duarte Nursery, I'll say that one first, but Virtual <laughs> Nursery, Wilson Nursery, Green Tree Nursery, Driver Nursery, all right here. So when left to our own devices with local resources and local leadership, we built this oasis without the federal government. And so to say that, well, the federal government's doing everything, well, maybe they're doing a lot of things, but maybe there's not enough freedom for local communities to solve their own problems. And I, I don't believe for a moment that we couldn't solve water and infrastructure with better, lo more local control and without federal interference and some resources. But it does require some collectivism, to your point. I mean, oh, it's we, not... we need a government. Yeah. You know, I'm, 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 I'm in the sure. U.S. Congress. <laughs> I'm very proud to walk well... up the steps and, and, <laughs> yeah. and see the Capitol building and participate in the government we have. It just doesn't need to get bigger at the exclusion of family, of local control, of individual initiative, free enterprise, opportunity yeah. and affordability. Right. Well, we want to talk to you also about immigration. Yeah. Uh, you made some headlines. You were one of a few Republicans uh, earlier this year to vote against a GOP-backed uh, immigration bill. This would have funded uh, construction of the border wall. It would have limited asylum, uh, the asylum system. What was kind of your thinking going into that and ultimately why you decided to vote against the bill? Sure. Well, first of all, it was a bill that would have passed, that passed Congress that said, let's build the border wall. Do we see the border security? No, we don't see the border security, even though it passed despite me voting against it. It's not doing anything. It was just a messaging bill because there was nothing in it for the other side. So I was suggesting, hey, we, I really do want a secure border. You know, and if you want to put the border security in place, we need a DACA fix. We need a DACA fix right now. If you want a secure border and you want to ramp up E-Verify, which is a major problem I had with that bill, if you want to put forced me to become a policeman at my own company with families who've been relying on working at my company for decades. And you want to do the same thing to every other family and every company throughout the Central Valley for the, greatly. Um, then let's talk about a guest worker program. Let's talk about bringing our working families out of the shadows. Let's talk about getting a DACA fix done. And if we talk about those things along with border security, then we might actually get these problems fixed. If all you want to do is pass a messaging bill that that if passed would disenfranchise working families, would disenfranchise employers. Um, it's not going to pass. It's not going to do anything if it does just do those things and not solve DACA, have a guest worker program, fix some long-term lingering immigration issues that are becoming public safety issues. These families can't come out of the shadows. Then you're just messaging and I'm not interested in that message. I mean, your party has moved pretty far to the right. And a lot of the things you're talking about are kind of... Uh, outside of the mainstream for, for the Republican Party. How, what are those conversations like with folks within your caucus? How are you making that case to them? Well, in some cases successfully and in some cases unsuccessfully. I mean, obviously, you know, if you go to the Judiciary Committee and you go to the, um, the Subcommittee on Immigration, that, that's a fairly conservative group of, group of Republicans in there and they have their own perspectives. Uh, but if you go to the, you know, other bills I'm on, we've got, you know, Maria Salazar from Florida. She's she's got the Dignity Act. I'm on board with her on that. I'm one of the one of the few Republican co-sponsors with her there. If you go to Lori Chavez Dreamer, she's got the Dream Act, mm -hmm. dealing with the Dreamers. I'm one of a few Republicans on that with her. So there's um, there's a number of um, bipartisan immigration efforts going along. Um, I think they I think they're viable if we get leadership. Right now, 
we have border chaos, you know, down at the border, it's complete chaos. And, and our current president's been sending his vice president down there to deal with it, look at it. She has lunch about 80 miles from the border and comes home. You're talking about the Texas Yeah, border. Texas, Texas, Do you think California Mexico, border is Arizona. A mess? Yeah, the whole, the whole border is a mess. And, and we're not doing anything about it. There's been no legislation change. Nothing's been legislated. We simply have an executive, you know, President Biden, who doesn't want to deal with the problem down there for whatever reason. And it, it's making it... A, a, a huge mess. So what do you see as the roadblocks? I mean, let's take specifically, you've been working on a bill around uh, migrant farm workers. That's something supported by Democrats and Republicans in California. What's holding that back? I mean, that's passed the House before. What's the roadblock there? Well, the road, the, the biggest roadblock to anything happening in immigration in the last 20, 30 years, really since 1986, when Reagan did the, the, big, the big amnesty program and the big, the big um, that bill had border security in it. That 86 immigration bill had border security in it. So until we pass border security and get it implemented, there's gonna be a lot of reluctance towards anything else. Now, if we wanna do it stepwise and say, we will secure the border, then we, have, we will vote now also to solve these problems. That would be great. But, but that seems, I mean, it's been 10 years since yeah. the, you know, the last big compromise reform on that. It seems like Republican voters have moved to the right, Democratic voters have moved to the left on this issue. You're still, you still have hope? I, I have a lot of hope because, you know, I'm also looking at, you know, this is a Voting Rights Act district. This, this is a district, California 13, that is 60% Hispanic by voter, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a, a Voting Rights Act district. There's going to be more of these come to play. And, and Hispanic families are starting to look at the same problems we're all looking at. They're not, you know, we, we don't want to pass laws that are, you know, insulting that would disenfranchise them if implemented, which, which the border security bill and the E-Verify clause of it would have, but they, they're staring at the same issues we're staring at. And so I wanna make sure that, that in the Republican party, we're, we've got an enticing message for Hispanic families to look at, look at Republican candidates like myself and say, you know what? Maybe there's some people in that party that, that aren't with us on everything, but there's a lot of people in the Democrat party that are hurting us. You know, we're not drilling American oil. We're not getting water on the farms. We have border chaos. We have groups that want to defund the police. So, you know, there's real decisions to be made. And I want to put up an offering of a moderate Republican agenda that really solves problems for working families and shows them that the American dream is still alive and that we're fighting for their access to the American dream. Well, on uh, switching gears a little bit, talking about um a couple other votes you've taken. So you were the only Republican that voted against amendments to the defense bill that would have blocked the Department of Defense from paying for abortions and sex reassignment surgeries. Why that vote? Is that about tying those issues to defense authorization? Or, yeah, talk about That was thinking. the Clyde Amendment. Yeah. And the, the major problem I had with that was when I ran, I said, I'm a moderate on abortion, right? A, it's a state issue. I believe women should have access to first trimester abortion. And I will vote against any effort to federalize abortion law. So that was simply fulfilling a campaign promise. Now, we never get to choose exactly how these things are packaged up, right? You know, sometimes you get a narrow abortion amendment. Sometimes it's packaged in an appropriations bill. But, you know, women go in the military and they may be stationed wherever the military stations them. It could be a, a, a state with very restrictive abortion laws. And it's a medical service that the military, you know, provides it should not be a woman's um, cost to bear 
if she has to be, go to another state to get medical services that are available where she needs them, um, just because she's in the military. I don't want women not enlisting because we restrict their access to certain medical services based on what state they're in. Yeah. The state party is actually considering removing opposition to a federally protected right to abortion from the party platform. What do you make of that? I really want to keep uh, abortion a state's issue. Now, I think in California, I will starkly disagree with some of the extreme left end of that with full term and elective late term. I Those things I disagree with. But we've argued for years, decades now, that abortion is a state's rights issue. And I think that's where it belongs. Yeah. All right. Just a couple more questions. Um, the first Republican debate is tonight. We're taping this Wednesday. I'm curious who you're supporting uh, next year and, and what you're looking for in these debates and this just campaign moving forward. Well, I want my party to retake government. And I'm looking at the debate without any opinion on the individual players. I'm going to vote Republican. It's baked in. I'm going to support the Republican candidate for president. But I want that candidate to be whoever can deliver us the biggest win, mm -hmm. whoever can appeal to the moderate, the moderate voters and bring us um, victory in the White House, also the Senate, also Congress. And so I'm just looking for whoever successfully resonates with the most Americans possible, which probably means a more, a more moderate candidate. But I'm not I'm not picking any names. I just I want to win and I want to get America back to affordability, opportunity and the American dream. Does a Trump nomination make your job more hard next fall? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a turnout model. It's lots of moving parts. All I know is I can I can do my job well. I can vote my district. I can be accessible and engage in my district and hope people know what I'm about. And if that's not what the people want, then I'll, I'll go make some trees and vines. All right, well, when he's not voting in Congress, he's running the Poinsettia Farm. Congressman Duarte, thank you so much for having us. Appreciate well, it. Marisa Guy, thank you for having me. Great, great speaking to you here today. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.